Season 2 of Eli Roth's History of Horror is now available to Shudder members. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to stream all episodes now. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. So in some cases, Eli leads the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sienga steps in. Today, Kurt will be guiding you through a conversation with one of our most exciting contemporary authors, Victor Laval. Victor Laval is imaginative and he's incisive. He's a fantastic writer and a student and a product of loving horror like we all are. It's a quality which so purposefully informs his stories, much like his New York heritage and being a Black genre creator does. So this all came together in his breakout work, The Ballad of Black Tom. In The Ballad of Black Tom, Laval re-envisions and he radically reimagines H.P. Lovecraft's The Horror Red Hook, but from the perspective of a Black musician from Harlem. This pays tribute to Lovecraft's influence, but interrogates the bigotry and prejudice at the roots of Lovecraft's work. Here, Laval talks about his introduction to horror, literature, film, muses on what makes all of it great, and then, of course, he dives into what he's up to in something like The Ballad of Black Tom. Here now is Victor Laval. Listen up, ghouls. Uh, what's your name? My name is Victor Laval. What drew you to the horror genre? Actually, I got into the horror genre when I was a kid, uh, mostly because I'm not from a very bookish family, but I did love reading. Uh, my mom was not a big reader, but she supported reading. So what that meant, though, was that most of the books that I got were from the spinner rack at uh, pharmacies or supermarkets. And in the 80s, the mass market paperbacks, the romances had men and women cuddling, so my mom's not going to buy me that. Then it had spy novels, which had guns on the cover, so my mom wasn't going to buy me that. But horror novels just had like an eerie looking house or like a monkey toy, and my mom didn't know that those were bad. So that's what she got me. So I became a horror lover because of what those covers looked like in the 80s, or else I would have been a romance writer, maybe. I actually have a wall full of paperback covers that I got uh, back in the day that uh-huh. montage, and The Shining is original covers, that kind of silver with the kids, you know. With just the face, that's right, yeah. that's right. And that kind of stuff, it kind of slid under the radar, uh, certainly for my mother. In reading that stuff, what kind of caught your fancy about that would buy? Uh, well, one of the things that jumped out at me, for one of the first writers who I really fell in love with was a writer named Clive Barker. Uh, and he had a series of books called The Books of Blood. And in particular, there was one story in there called The Midnight Meat Train. And it took place on the New York City subway systems. And I had never read a book, a horror novel or horror story that took place in New York in a city. Uh, and so I was already sort of into horror, but then when I read that and I realized like, oh my, where I'm from could be in horror and could be a part of the story, I was sold. It's kind of amazing if your mother, did your mom buy you Books of Blood? By the time of Books of Blood, I was able to buy my own stuff uh, because I was saving up a little money here and there. But even those, the original paperback covers for those were these like, uh, almost like cheap Halloween mask kind of looking things. 
that looked a little gruesome, but it wasn't gory or anything like that. Would give you any idea of how incredibly over-the-top Clive Barker's writing. Exactly, exactly. So it was still a sneak attack, except I guess I paid for my own sneak attack. So, yeah, Barker, obviously, he looms large in contemporary horror, as does, you know, then the obvious obvious name, Stephen King. Sure. Of his books, which ones were uh, your favorites when you were a kid? What'd you like? Um, well, I got into Stephen King through his stories as well, Night Shift and things like that. But the book, the first book of his that I really loved was It. Uh, and it was for two reasons. Number one, it was really big. And so when I would show up at school with it, I would really feel like I was impressing people with how smart I must be because I'm reading a thousand page book. Uh, and then the other thing that I think sometimes would surprise people is that I loved the book because in the first chapter, first couple pages, a little boy dies. And that boy was not that much older than me. I mean, younger than me. And I never had read a book where children were at risk. But my daily life growing up, I felt at risk all the time. I walked to school alone. Uh, There were adults who were kind of skeevy. There were kids who bullied me. Uh, There were fights and all this kind of stuff. My life really did feel risky. And so I was grateful for a book that admitted that sometimes it almost feels like you are going to die. King's books, what do you think makes King's, what explains his enduring popularity? One thing I think is underrated about Stephen King is that I think he is a great writer of place. Salem's Lot, if you go back to Salem's Lot, is an amazing book about Maine, especially like small town Maine. I still remember to this day him describing the different kinds of dirt that telephone poles are lodged in if they're closer to town or if they're farther out in the country. Uh, You know, that to me is like, really high-level writing that he doesn't get credit for. But the other part of it is I do think he has a great conversational voice. It really sounds like, uh, since I was a lot younger than him, Uncle Stevie, as he used to call himself in the author's notes, is just telling you a story. And voice matters, I think, even more than what the plots actually were. You know, because there's any number of them that I don't necessarily remember what happened, but I remember him telling me what happened. Did you read uh, Dance Macabre at that point? I read that a little bit late. I was already into horror a little bit, but I was starting to realize I needed to get past Stephen King, Clive Barker, maybe Peter Straub, a couple other people. I needed to know the history. And so that was one of the first books that seemed to say, like, I can teach you what came before. Uh, And so then I fell into people like uh, Richard Matheson and Shirley Jackson, who became an eternal favorite for me. And so it really helped me to understand where all this had come from. Obviously, your, your work is also engages some of these authors in their past, so semi-famously H.P. Lovecraft. Uh-huh. So. Sure. And, uh, first, like, what are the, the pros of Lovecraft? Yeah. Well, so I fell in love with Lovecraft probably almost the same time as I did with, say, Clive Barker, so probably, like, 11 or 12. And what I loved was it's just stories full of paranoia, full of fear of everyone and everything. Everything is out to get you. Everything hates you. And again, when I was 12, that is how I also thought the world felt. And so it made complete sense to me. And then there was also, again, a way that, like, um, the fact that his diction was so archaic and the language was sort of a throwback language, there was a certain pride in me almost deciphering the texts to understand what the hell he was even talking about. Because there was a good half the time I did not understand even a simple sentence in Lovecraft because of the sort of way he was writing. Uh, So I took great pride in understanding him and then the idea of grasping at what was called cosmic horror. You know, the idea that the universe does not care about you. And again, being a kind of nihilistic 12-year-old kid, that also felt like actually 
sacred knowledge, to learn that, to believe that, and to think that way about him. And it wasn't until I was maybe 14 or 15 that I realized he was also crazy xenophobic. Uh, then reading the same exact stories, I would read the same stories that at 12 I loved, and all of a sudden I would start noticing all this really messed up stuff in there. I started to notice what he thought of foreigners, as he often described, the more dusky, the dusky folk of this place or that place. And I started to be like, hey, I'm, I think I might be dusky folk. Uh, this might be problematic for me. Uh, not to mention just outright like um, terror at what these unknowable sort of foreign people and immigrants and brown people wanted to do to characters who were a lot like Lovecraft. And he was never wanted to be friends. Lovecraft is such a such a loaded loaded topic, obviously. But um, did you read that in Michelle Michelle Holmbach's uh, book about him? I, I did not read the book. It's actually really good. Okay. And although Holmbach, being Holmbach, he takes the position that Lovecraft, you know, it's not about Lovecraft hating specific races. It's about Lovecraft hating humanity. Right. <laughs> so right. Human beings. Right. Flat out. Which would make sense for why Holmbach likes him. Right? Because I feel like that's a current in him, right? But he also, I mean, I feel like that, even that argument is a little bit uh, facetious, especially from him, because I feel like Huelbeck is a great, he's probably the great French troll of literature, right? I mean, and that a lot of his books, he means to push at the places where people feel sensitive and tender about, you're not supposed to say that, you're not supposed to think that way. He does that on purpose, and I feel like there's a part of Lovecraft, whether he did it on purpose or not, he was also pushing at those same places. So I don't, to me, it feels a little disingenuous to say he hates all of humanity, because I feel like he hates some humanity more than others. Yeah, you know? Definitely, yeah. And, and he, he certainly saw himself as like this 19th century man, you know, lost in the hideous 20th century. Yeah, born too soon. I mean, born too late uh, to enjoy the spoils of his, uh, his family, what he deserved due to his lineage and all that kind of right. stuff. While at the same time, the interesting thing, thing that always interests me about him is he is probably the first writer basically to really understand what uh, physicists were saying about the sure. universe and about uh, and astronomers <laughs> and everything yes. about the nature, the real nature of the universe and the way it works. Well, I think actually that's the thing that is often uh, overlooked about Lovecraft's triumphs. The things that were great about him is that they do track scientific discovery quite closely because he really was an amateur scientist. And that that cosmic horror's point of view, I think one of the things that makes it endure is that it turned out, it seems, you know, scientifically it turned out to be right. Uh, and that that gives it its staying power. I also think, although I'm not sure anybody's really written too much about this, but I think the problem with that in his allegiance to science is that the science around, say, for instance, eugenics at, this, at that point that's in right. history was, was not sound. So. That's right. Well, that, but that's the danger. I mean, I think like that's the kind of beauty of him is, uh, and the beauty of, like, say, the, for lack of a better term, the modern religion of science would be to overlook the fact that science is always actually saying we might be wrong. So we're going to keep testing. Uh, but that a lot of people, even people who think of themselves as rational and scientific, they just want a sure answer once and for all. And so whatever science is saying today, that's it. They don't want to hear changes in that. And the danger of that is then you end up getting stuck on uh, essentially what are beliefs instead of actual scientific uh, realities. If you would talk a little about how your work engaged Lovecraft, kind of reappropriated him. As I said, I grew up as that kid 
who loved Lovecraft and then aged into the young man and the man who had criticisms of Lovecraft. But um, in a lot of ways, he was like a, an uncle who you grew up loving, but at Thanksgiving, he always said some kind of racist and sexist stuff. When you get older, I think you still love that person but it doesn't mean you agree with everything that he says. And so when I sat down to write uh, my book uh, about a black Tom, I wanted to take maybe his most famously racist and xenophobic story, the horror at Red Hook, and I wanted to essentially remix it and tell it again, but from the point of view of one of the dusky brown hordes who he sets up as just a sort of mass to fear, I felt like I grew up not far from where those people are living. And I happen to know that the people there had hopes and dreams, highs and lows, all that stuff. And I thought, what if I could insert myself in the life I knew into a Lovecraft story? How would it change a Lovecraft story? And so that's what I decided to do. What's great about that story, I think, is Ed also essentially the monster is uh, a man who's turned into a monster by society, by racism. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to show essentially like uh, the worst thing in the, in the indifference of the universe is not the worst thing in the world. The hate of the universe would be worse and the actual systematic work done on people to make them feel like they have nothing to lose by becoming monstrous is much worse than cosmic indifference. And I wanted to show this guy who is a good guy. He cares for his father. He's a loving son. He's a friend to others. He's not a bad dude, but by the end of the story, when he has essentially turned into what Lovecraft would have been terrified of, this time at least you understand how he got there and why he got there. And maybe it's not as simple as just he was born bad. It's, uh, yeah, he's got some legitimate reasons for his rage. Yeah. And thinking of it like a, I don't know, we'll call it a cautionary tale, but just to say that like maybe if things had just worked slightly different, a few things had worked slightly different, if the deck hadn't been literally stacked against him in so many ways, maybe he would have come out of this all right and could have been a good member of that society and good to people and not slaughtering dozens of people with a razor, which is how it ended up. Is horror, is the genre of uh, fiction, films, you know, stories, genre yeah. stories, are they, do they let you explore areas that maybe more conventional fiction cannot? Well, you know, I like to think of, uh, I mean, one of the great things about horror and maybe genre in general is that you can talk about a thing without expressly discussing that thing, right? So the example I always like to think about is Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, to me, is the story of a woman who picked the wrong husband. Like, that's what it's about. You made a bad choice in the husband. He was selfish. He was willing to sacrifice you for his own needs. Now, there are conventional novels that are about that, but the danger is you sort of say, once you figure out that you picked a bad husband, that's kind of the end of the story. Then you either stay or leave. Whereas Rosemary's Baby gets to say, well, you picked a bad husband, but you're already pregnant with the devil's child. So things are more complicated than that. Sometimes when I think about like the equivalent to Rosemary's Baby, sometimes I think like maybe Kramer versus Kramer, right? But for me, for whatever ways that movie might be good, I don't hear that movie talked about still as a sort of something that has a charge to it that you want to keep watching. But Rosemary's Baby, generation after generation, people come back to it. And I think it's because they're finding not only the great fun and the horror, but also at the heart of it, this very human issue, along with say even, what do you do when you have a kid who's half Satan? 
Well, in that case, that brings up the omen. So. Yes, that's right. That's right. What do you think of the omen? Well, I, actually, I think even that is kind of a great comparison because I think the omen is great fun, but I can't say it made me think about very much. And Rosemary's Baby is great fun, and it still makes me think about a lot. And so I think, you know, they both have their values, but uh, I know if I was trapped on a desert island, the only one I would watch more than once is probably Rosemary's Baby. That's a great film. Yeah, I think so. And the omen, I have to say, like, I mean, a priest who gets his head cut off by a sheet of glass flying out of a truck. I mean, I can't, I can't say that's bad. I enjoy that, too. It's just not, you know, you don't, it doesn't make you think about anything. How did they do that? <laughs> then how did they do that? Although that was a legitimate reason for seeing a lot of horror films, particularly You're absolutely the 80s. right. That's right. That's right. Well, even like in the 90s, like the, uh, I enjoyed those Final Destination movies because I just wanted to see what are they going to come up with, right? Like that was actually a pleasure, right? But again, I have not watched any of them since. Yeah. Did you watch any of like the slasher cycles, so those like Friday, Friday the 13th or Halloween's or Nightmare on Elm Street? I would say I did Halloween probably up to at least number three, Season of the Witch, which I think is criminally underrated. And then Friday the 13th, certainly, Nightmare on Elm Street. And then speaking of like the history of things, going back to even like uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, to get to something that maybe is less fun because it feels much more real. Of course, I, I def I'm a kid of the 80s. I loved all that slasher stuff. So if you had a Friday the 13th, for instance, what do you think are the uh, high points and low points of that series? Um, well, I'll say the high point for me is that moment at the end of number one when the woman is in the boat, the canoe, and she thinks it's over. You think, she thinks it's one. You re, you, and for the whole movie, it's been a non-supernatural movie. And then that kid just pops out of the water and pulls her down. I mean, that was amazing to me. It still will scare me. It's a well-earned jump scare. And then for me, the low point would be in Friday the 13th, part three. I remember my uncle taking me to see that, and I was way too young to see it. And there's a moment where Jason finds a guy in a barn and he picks him up. And I think this is because pro wrestling was very popular. He picks him up to do a, like a suplex or, or something on him. And he holds him upside down, puts his head between his knees and squeezes until the eyeballs pop out. And since it was in 3D, they shoot right out at you. And I immediately jumped up and ran out of the theater because I was terrified. And my uncle, really like a minute later, he comes out just grumbling and angry because he was planning to take a nap for that time. He didn't want to take care of me. He just wanted to take a nap, you know. Let's talk about horror archetypes and how they kind of wax and wane in popularity. For over sure. Years. The one that I feel like now is, at least seems to me to be kind of straining a little bit, is got to be the serial killers who wear masks and stalk people very slowly. The first thing I always think is like, well, how patient are these people. It's amazing how long they will take to stand outside a window, stand outside a giant glass uh, door, whatever it might be. I feel like those things had their power and their effect early 2000s, maybe it was kind of scary. But by now, it almost seems clownish to me because I, st I have to start wondering about the psychology behind all this. Uh, so to me, like the best horror about serial killers lately has been Mindhunters. Uh, series because it treats the serial killers like they're human beings with motivations and desires and senses of humor and things like that. And they're, to me, so much more terrifying because they are human beings as opposed to sort of kabuki killers. 
the 80s in particular saw the sort of rise of these sort of semi or all the way supernatural villains or, yeah. or maybe they started out as realistic villains and then turned into supernatural villains yeah. like the shape in the halloween movies or whatever and then we saw things like silence of the lambs for instance mm -hmm. and seven which tended to be like a bit more realistic even though you could argue those two villains are also like Hannibal Lecter is like a super villain he's a base yeah that's right that's right but he in theory is still a human being right you don't actually ever see him shot down and then he just gets up so I think they aired on the right side right. with that well it's like Dr. No though. <laughs> right he's Dr. No I like that <laughs> yeah why do horror film horror films horror stories work so well as uh, metaphors <laughs> I think the good ones, certainly, uh, pretty quickly you can understand what they're trying to talk about. But uh, I think just human beings in general, at least I, we have two kids, me and my wife have two kids. I know when I tell them directly what I mean or what I want them to do, it doesn't work. They don't listen. Do you know what I mean? They just ignore whatever I've, got, I've told them. But I found like if through play, say, or through a book or something like that, we end up addressing the thing that we're trying to get to, how you should treat somebody else, this, this, or this. Weirdly, through the storytelling, they can insert themselves into it and understand the point a lot better. And so I think there's a way that telling a story through that metaphor or analogy, whatever it might be, actually lets people drop their defenses in a way that they won't when it's like clear what you want them to be thinking about, what to take away. Is horror in particular, like, does that let you achieve effects that you couldn't achieve in other genres? Well, I think horror is particularly good about talking about some of the harshest subjects, right? And some of the biggest feelings, the things that cause real terror, pain, and fear. That is, I think, horror's sweet spot. Um, most other genres, while they talk about things that are huge and they matter to people, I don't believe that they necessarily get to those, the emotions or the ideas that we are most frightened of and the things that we most want to run away from. Horror lets us run toward that stuff instead of away from it. What horror films have left a mark on you? And what do you think made them so effective? A few of the ones that still sometimes will play in my head almost like by accident. There's a old movie called Extro that might be science fiction horror-ish, but there's a really disturbing birth scene in Extro that I remember seeing again much too young, and it really freaked me out. But it never left me. I mean, it was really vivid. Uh, and then I remember uh, Videodrome has a great scene where James Woods is like pulled into the TV, where his head's going into the TV. And that's really disturbed me as a kid again. I don't know why. There are other scenes that are much more sort of grisly, but that one disturbed me. Right? Maybe similarly was uh, in Poltergeist, just uh, the little girl, Carol Ann, I think, just in front of that TV with the white fuzz, just the silhouette of her, and uh, the way that there too it made it seem like the TV was a predator in a way that also maybe spoke to me as a kid of that time. And then in The Exorcist, in Friedkin's Exorcist, there's one moment, there's lots of scary moments there too, but there's a moment where Regan is on the bed and she's like writhing in pain. And for a moment, the statue of the demon appears beside her and she's in silhouette. And she actually looks more monstrous than the statue. And I remember again as a kid thinking like, something is really wrong here. Those are the things that really stayed with me uh, more than gore was a moment when I perceived like something has gone wrong in this world, in this life. And uh, 
that got in deep into my bones. Are there any generalizations about horror fans? Who do you think consumes this most voraciously? Well, I'll tell you, so I grew up on uh, two forms of music, hip hop and heavy metal. And I can tell you, I found a heavy metal and horror fan often crossed over. Uh, I found that heavy metal folks and horror fans are absolutely the sweetest people by and large, you're gonna meet. They get out all this like ugly emotional stuff, but then you meet them one on one, and by and large, most of us are just kind of awkward and I think mostly kind. Uh, and I think that is a big surprise to people that the people who consume this stuff the most are actually in many ways, I'm just gonna say, are the sweetest humans who ever lived. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Okay, cool. Did you come upon any you know, black horror films or literature that made an impression on you? When I was younger, there really wasn't all that much of it. I remember there was a science fiction movie, uh, Brother from Another Planet, that my uncle showed me that really made an impression on me just to see him in the world and in a setting that was like science fiction. And then on the horror end, there might have been Ganja and Hess by Bill Gunn. But even that one, I have to admit, when I first saw it again through this uncle, I didn't understand. I was totally uh, out of my depth because it wasn't simple, like hack and slash or whatever like that, like I might have been used to. It was kind of thoughtful and a little bit dreamy. But those were really the, the two things I can think of back then that included anyone who looked like me or my family. You know, that was, I thought, something that was kind of lacking or more than kind of lacking. I interviewed Tony Todd, who played Candyman. Uh -huh, yes, so yes, yes, yes. About the one, he's like the only like black horror icon. I think that's right. But I have to say, like, I was kind of happily amazed by that popularity, only because I did love Candyman, the first one. I loved the Clive Barker story it was based on. If you were to explain, well, it's about this black dude who was murdered for having sex with a white lady, and then he comes back and hunts the white lady and lots of other people too. You'd be like, eh, I don't think we're gonna make that movie. You know what I mean? But somehow, he like, through, the, through his level of magnetism and charm, he manages to make Candyman someone, I don't know if they love him, but who they love to fear, you know? And I did enjoy him a lot. He's really soulful and like sexy, basically. Yes. Versus all the other <laughs> movie plots. I think that's right. Well, and he gets even like, I think in that first one especially, he gets across a sense of um, deep sadness and pain that I think makes it complicated, especially when you find out how he was turned into Candyman. Uh, it's not possible to just dismiss him like Jason, say, or Freddy even. When Freddy started making all the, you know, especially when he started making jokes and stuff, then he's just hitting for laughs. But he never, I don't think, I didn't feel like he ever turned into that. Yeah, Freddy, it's, it's interesting also going back and watching those films because the first movie, he's just flat out scary. Yes, he is. And his story, I mean, like, uh, when, again, that's another one that if you were to lay out, it's like, a, well, this is a story about a pedophile and the parents in the town find out he's a pedophile, so they burn him alive, and then he comes back to murder their children. This is a movie for teenagers. You know what I mean? Like, that's the end of that sentence. I would not expect the end of that sentence to be that. And for teenagers to then gobble it up. But I think, again, it goes back to the idea that, like, adults think kids and teenagers need to be protected from the harsh things in life. But in fact, teenagers and kids are dying for people to talk honestly with them, or at least to let them think about the idea of the dangers in the world, you know? And horror films and movies, give, books, gives you a way to do that. And horror lets you do that. Uh, 
in a way that almost nothing else does. And in fact, maybe to some degree, the fact that it is sort of uh, treated like the stepchild of the rest of the serious arts or, or just general popular arts lets us all do it in semi-private. So we just talk with each other about it and then it's just the outside world every 10 years is horrified to discover what we've been talking about. Well, again, looking at Clyde Barker stuff, if you look at exactly how transgressive those stories in the Books of Blood are. So. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he does, I mean, between in those three volumes, the amount of kinds of uh, horror, but also eroticism that he covers is amazing. And the fact that it became this popular thing, particularly in America where we are pretty cool with violence but squeamish about sex, it's amazing how much sex and sexuality is in that book, are in those books. And uh, speaking of another, uh, the Hellraiser films too. So. Yeah, for sure. Right from that first one, just even getting into like, uh, here's a guy, newly married, you find out she was having a long-standing sexual affair with the guy's brother, and now he's back in, I mean, it is so tangled. You know, like, uh, it is easily as tangled as a soap opera, a daytime soap opera or a romance novel. It just also includes, you know, uh, killing people for their blood. And the Cenobites, which I have to say has actually been nothing. Uh, I, were there any monsters before the Cenobites that are ever so psychosexual and... I really can't think of it. I mean, it is, uh, uh, sometimes I also think about, um, as a kid who grew up as a metalhead, when we look back on, say, Judas Priest and Rob Halford, the lead singer, and the way he popularized essentially leather fetish gear, and then there's a certain kind of comedic joy in then seeing all these rah-rah masculine dudes taking on what is essentially S&M gear and making it like we're the toughest, hardest, most heterosexual dudes. But when you trace it back, you see like, this is where it came from. All of this is more complicated than you think. And that the Cenobites felt like that for horror. Like nobody else was doing anything like that. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody else still has. Although for real sexual confusion, hair metal. <laughs> yes, but I think, but actually, you know, I think even there, to their credit, I kind of loved uh, in, um, the History of Western Civiliza Civilization Part Two. I kind of loved the, the guys who acknowledged that this was essentially like uh, not that far off from glam rock and like playing with sexuality because the point was you want the boys and the girls at the club to want you and the boys and the girls don't quite know what they want yet. Like I kind of love that they dove straight into that as opposed to like sort of the much more like we're sticking to our heterosexual guns, masculinity is all man of war and stuff like that. Groups that were butch, but almost comically so. Right, antecedents would be slayed. Like yeah, that. yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, Robin Wood, you know, the film scholar, he once reduced all horror down to the words, normality is threatened by the monster. And what do you think of that? I think that's right for a lot of horror, but I, at least the horror that is my favorite could be reduced to saying like normality wasn't that great either. Rosemary's Baby is one of those. I think at the end of Rosemary's Baby, she's going to leave that husband, raise that baby as a single mom, and kill it and be amazing about things. Uh, so I, I always view it as like a movie about like, it's not so great to be in a nuclear family when you can't trust your husband. Move on and do your own thing. And then of course, more recently, Get Out also is saying like, that sort of, oh, that suburban family, the idea of getting with this woman and everything will be good, forget all of that. 
Maybe there's a new way you need to live by the end of that movie. I always feel like the secret lesson of that movie by the end is to the main character is like, maybe you should date some black girls for a little while, right? At least for a little while. And then uh, Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle on the literature end of things, I also feel like says like, you begin that book thinking, oh no, they need to get out of that house. It's a sick and weird place. They need to get out into the real world again and join regular people. And then as Shirley Jackson does, she proves that regular people are much worse than the weirdos trapped in that house. And so by the end, you realize, oh, I think those weirdos should stay in there, but just go deeper into the house and get farther away from people. The horror that I love the most says, you have to defeat the monster, but you also have to defeat normality. And speaking of Shirley Jackson, um, and we're gonna look at the movie The Haunting, but yes. I also wanna give props to, you know, The Haunting of Hill House. For sure. If you could tell me a little about that and just like a short summary, you know, cause Shirley Jackson didn't produce a lot of work, but That's what right. she did was very influential. For sure. So uh, The Haunting of Hill House is probably one of my favorite horror novels or psychological horror novels. And I think uh, it's worth noting in that one um, how much time Shirley Jackson spends on making you understand the real point of that whole story is the depth of loneliness on the part of the young woman at the center of the story, but also the loneliness of the house. And so when they come together, you realize on some level, this is actually the beginning of a happy ending, or at least it seems like it could be, right? Two lonely beings finally come together, but because it's Shirley Jackson and there's no, un, there's no happy ending she couldn't destroy, she finds a way to make you then question by the end, can you ever not be lonely? Is essentially, I think, the question at the heart of Shirley Jackson's the Haunting of Hill House, and maybe at the heart of a lot of her work, is that you cannot escape that inherent isolation that is maybe like the human character. How's the movie hold up as an adaptation of the book? Uh, the first one, The Haunting, I think does a really pretty decent job. I think there's a way that most people privilege the idea of togetherness somehow saving everyone, of like a finding a community being good for people. I always think almost all the adaptations sort of veer in that direction. Like it would be good if Eleanor got away. But what I like about the book is that you're not sure until maybe even the last paragraph of the book, which would be better, going back home to the terrible life that she'll have with her sister and brother-in-law or staying here with Hill House. Uh, so I, I think The Haunting did the best version, but of course uh, I'm a writer, so I'm going to be biased and say that the book was still better. What do you think of the new version of It versus It? I think the, the newest version of It did a number of things really well. I mean, I, the other thing is I'm stuck on, I saw the 90s TV show version. I think nostalgia makes me feel like it's a better movie than it is, but I liked Tim Curry's Pennywise. I thought it was funny in the right amounts. And that if there's one thing maybe for me that's missing from the latest, it would be just a little bit of a wink. There's a way that it's super serious, it's super straight. And I love the kids. The kids were amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing part two, seeing what they do with it. But I loved that uh, the 90s show version, maybe even more than the book, was like, we're taking this serious, but not completely serious. And I kind of like horror that lives right in that zone. Yeah, I remember the, the 90s one 
too. And I remember it was really good, though. So I thought so. I thought so. I mean, I've, I've read all these hot takes now that were basically like, if you think the 90s one was good, it's just that you're over the hill. And I was sort of like, oh, well, yeah, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Yeah, I was sort of like, well, I, I can't argue with you necessarily on that, but I still think it was good. Although I haven't seen it since then. Since then. <laughs> I did watch um, Salem's Lot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they have like the compressed version, you know, with David Soul. Did it hold up for you? If you can get past David Soul, basically, <laughs> it's, I mean, he's playing as straight as he can play it. Yes. And it still had stuff in it that was kind of creepy. Well, that amazing scene, the one when the guy's in the chair, look at me, teacher, and all that, I mean, that still is an amazing scene. And the kid at the window. Kid at the window still works. You know, so I mean. Kids at the window. That's right, that's right. So, I mean, that's still pretty good uh, for a movie that old. This, you addressed this a little bit, but I think we could explore a little bit more. It's been argued that horror is by its nature conservative, since usually the protagonist restores the status quo, but you know, is the stat what if the status quo isn't worth preserving? I hope that there's a vein of horror that will continue to sort of grow that is much more skeptical about the idea that all you have to do to get to a happy ending or to save the day is get to exactly where you were before the monster showed up. I like the ones, that, I mean, if like part of what's great about horror is that it can look at the things we tend to look away from and can speak about the unspeakable. It would be nice if it could also say the way you were living before was also wrong or foul or just like not enough, do you know? And uh, that the more movies that perhaps are about uh, people who are not normally the central character, the more often I think it's possible for that to be there. Like a movie that pops into my head that sort of does that is uh, The Babadook that came out a few years ago, in part because uh, at the beginning, the mother and son are living with, essentially she's just totally overworked as a single mother and she's dealing with some degree of maybe depression, that kind of thing. She's got no one on her side. And what I love about that movie is not that they then face the Babadook and tell the Babadook you're terrible and then they're all happy eating cake and blah, blah, blah. But that at the end, they have found a way to, for lack of a better term, tame that feeling that mom was dealing with and make it so that it's a part of their lives, but it's not in the entire house. It's not taking over their lives. And I thought that was actually a pretty brilliant way to talk about the idea. You can't just banish this stuff. It's just always gonna be hard for her to be a mother. And maybe just personality-wise, she's always gonna be wrestling with a degree of melancholy or depression. And you can't just wish that away but you can find ways to feed it or control it and have the rest of your life work too. That strikes me as a not conservative end. That was really thrilling, I thought. Is the horror genre kind of uniquely able to address outsiders in society? I, think, I, mean, I think like at the heart of it, one of the things that's great about horror and when it really works is that it's talking about powerlessness, right? And that one of the reasons why different kinds of horror can work on almost everyone is because almost everyone understands powerlessness, right? Uh, but some people maybe understand it more. It's not a temporary thing. It's not a moment of powerlessness. It's a life of powerlessness. Again, like I think that there are some movies that are starting even more to wrestle with the idea that it's not just for a moment, say like uh, The Shining, it's not just that you're a wannabe writer who people won't publish right? It's maybe something bigger than that, like uh, it's The Shining but from the mom's point of view, which is again, you married a dude who you couldn't quite trust, 
who's got a drinking problem, who has a really bad idea to take a job at this hotel in the middle of nowhere, maybe you should leave that guy, right? And that, that's a story, that's a new way to tell that story, but for that outsider whose entire life is powerless or lacks as much power. Of course, famously, Kubrick's version of The Shining Jack Nicholson is crazy from the outset. So right. in the book, he was like a good man who had fallen into alcoholism, essentially. Right? Well, I always wonder there, like, I mean, it just if if Jack Nicholson had shaved, would you think he was sane? You know what I mean? Like, he comes into it right from those first scenes when they're walking around and uh, he's sitting for the job interview. He's playing it so off. I like when I was a kid and I saw that movie, I didn't understand that he was off right from the start. I really thought like he's just a guy who's taking care of his family and he needs this job. And so when the, the switch flips, uh, maybe around when uh, you find the, the stuff he's been typing, it really was a shock for me that he had flipped so hard. But maybe as an adult watching it, I would kind of be like, Wendy, just take the car and go. Just run now, you know? But that's also Kubrick's, you know, satire of the American nuclear family as well. Right. right. That she wouldn't be able to do that. Like, it wouldn't occur to her. It wouldn't occur to her, right. Even down to something as pragmatic as, like, it's his car. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, I feel like that stuff is floating in there, and I love that it might be floating in there, but I think a more modern take on that or on something else would have room to address that. So you understand, like, this, this movie or this book knows that you can't just use the old solutions anymore. You can't just tell the old stories anymore. Not if you want to do something fresh. Which actually is another question. Working in a genre in which there's, you know, so many stories have been told and there are all, you know, a lot of archetypes, whatever else that uh, you can play with, but at the same time they've been, you know, you're also following the path of somebody like Shirley Jackson. So, right. Um, what do you do to, how do you spin it, stories in a new way? Well, I actually think uh, one of the uh, most fun things to do is to lean into all the things that people expect. And then by leaning into those genre tropes, you can, I find you can often see that there's actually more room, there's more wiggle room within or around those tropes than people realize, right? Uh, like s some slapdash version of a thing, you're just gonna repeat all the notes and just go on. But that somewhere along the way, even the serial killers who all wear masks and stalk a person, there's some angle on that that might in some way complicate it or surprise the viewer or the reader. I think it actually can be very exciting to, to use all that stuff rather than to throw up your hands and like run away from it and like make horror that has no horror in it kind of thing. That doesn't seem like a solution that is very fruitful. Tell me about your reinterpretation of Frankenstein's monster or comics and uh, the monster is the ultimate misanthrope. So I wrote a comic called Destroyer uh, and uh, the idea I had, I'd reread Frankenstein maybe a year before I had the idea, six months before I had the idea, and was reminded about what a murderous creature the monster was. I just had totally forgotten or I had been washed away by decades of like the sweet monster who everybody thinks is so maligned and blah, 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 or even down to like the movies in the early 2000s where he's like a superhero uh, almost. And I said, I wanna kinda go back to the monster who kills women and children. Uh, I really kinda miss that version of the monster and I think it would test people in an interesting way because 
by now, I think a lot of people, if they come think of Frankenstein at all, they do think of him with some tenderness. There's a movie my kids love. It's called Alvin and the Chipmunks Meet Frankenstein. Uh, like, it's that level of, like, benign as a figure. And I said, I want him back to being a murderer. But I also wanted to not just retell the Frankenstein story. I wanted to continue the Frankenstein story, because at the very end of the novel, the monster is still alive. The creation, as he's called in the book, is still alive. And he says, I'm going to go kill myself now that Victor Frankenstein has died. But I like to think that he got outside after five minutes and decided, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm just going to live, right? So my comic took him to the modern day, having like hidden out in Antarctica and was just hanging out with the mink whales and the leopard seals and, and living his life there when like the real world sort of pulls him back. And then I was trying to merge that idea of like this creature who people say is like a, who they love but is also maligned. And I started tying that into when I was thinking of this in 2015 to police murders of black people in the United States. Uh, and I thought like, what if I put together Frankenstein and Black Lives Matter? How many people would run screaming from that idea? And that exactly made me wanted to lean into that and say, I bet I could tell an interesting story about that and think about the ways that both are about a kind of person who the rest of the world fears, but who is actually much more complicated than is understood. Right? Like that was the heart of it. It's like, why do you look at this being or these kinds of people and immediately feel fear, immediately feel as is like the language of the time now, uh, one's life was in danger just from looking at a person, just from pulling them over and they're the one in the driver's seat. How or why is that working on a person? And how or why did that work on people in Frankenstein? And I thought I could maybe have a way to have a conversation about today by bringing that storyline forward. But it would also hopefully be like entertaining enough and interesting enough that a reader wouldn't feel like they were getting lectured. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein. Oh, sure, so, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, that one is hideous. But what's beautiful is just his art, right? Like, I mean, that one is the, probably the only one that I feel like in, since Mary Shelley, that leaned into the actual like horrific aspect of the monster, you know? But I mean, it had also been a while since Bernie Wrightson had done that. So I figured like, I can still, I can still find it, yeah. Even the, the Hammer films, the Hammer Frankenstein films are interesting in that it's really the monster is uh, Victor Frankenstein. That's right. Yeah. Which is closer to the book, right? The book is much more about like what's wrong with Victor Frankenstein and about humanity as a whole than it is about like what's wrong with the monster. And there too, actually, once, at least for me as a reader, once the monster starts killing uh, Victor Frankenstein's family members, I'm actually pretty sympathetic, or at least I understand why the monster goes on that murderous spree. Even though I feel terrible for the victims, I guess, part of me is also just like, well, and that's what happens when you're related to Victor Frankenstein. You get murdered by his creation. <laughs> well, I contend that Frankenstein, I'm putting Frankenstein in the zombie episode. Okay, he is, thing. for yeah, sure. Could, would, I, I would love to have you say that on camera. Is Frankenstein a zombie? Uh, Frankenstein is a zombie, or Frankenstein's monster is a zombie, for sure. In the novel, he's just a, a zombie that can talk way too much. That's all. But I mean, that's, that's not the only place. There's a, a horror writer named Brian Keane who had a series of horror novels where they are essentially zombies, but they talk. They can drive cars, shoot guns, all this kind of stuff. So it, there is a 
early 2000s precedent for that kind of zombie too. But Frankenstein, by any normal means, does qualify. Although the monster is also vegan, so that's one way he's not like the modern zombie. But he is the walking dead. But he is the walking, literally the walking dead, yeah. The original zombie archetype seemed very much like rooted in colonialism and voodoo and all of mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. then, then it made a turn, obviously, with Romero. So could you talk about the original kind of portrayal of zombies as being part of this, you know, scary black voodoo, basically? Those earliest depictions of zombies were tied to a degree of fear and misunderstanding about what even the term zombie meant, what voodoo meant, or voodoo as a faith, right? Like it's the idea like here comes this, uh, something that is a faith to the people that they're talking about that has religious rituals just like anything else, but when filtered through the sort of fear and distance of a colonizer, turns into, oh, they worship the devil and they turn people into unthinking slaves. Like the original zombie idea was like, uh, was supposedly the idea that uh, voodoo practitioners gave people a like potion that made them non-thinking and made it seem like they were dead and then brought them back to wakefulness and then turned them into slaves like doing the dishes around their house or like working in the field, you know? And that that was like the original idea of a, of a horror, which I think makes sense as a, the idea of the horror is, um, you lose your individuality and you lose the power of individual choice, which is so much at the heart of particularly, I would say, like the Western idea, right? That each man or woman is the captain of his or her own fate. And what would be more terrifying than being told, no, no, someone else is in control of you. And they did it by this drink that they gave you. But then at a certain point, yeah, it's true that uh, that got shifted from living, the living dead, meaning you just seem dead, but you're alive, to you're, you're dead, but you seem alive. I don't know if I just said the same well, thing. Well, it's sort of like, yeah, reanimated for It's like you lose, you're, you're back, but you've lost your identity. That's right. Still, right? That's right. But you're now like a ravenous, murderous creature. So. That's right. Although I remember reading an essay that I found pretty interesting that was about why the particular Romero type of zombie took such a hold say in the United States, and it was all about the idea that Americans are not comfortable with ancestor worship, uh, like some other cultures, say like in Japan, things like that, where by now, zombie movies, there's Train to Busan, things like that. But that in America, we, like, we don't generally keep ashes in the home, we don't have little altars to our dead in the house, and that there's a way that for many Americans, when you're dead, you're in the ground, you're gone. And so nothing would be more terrifying than the dead coming back. But that in a lot of other cultures, the dead coming back is not necessarily viewed as monstrous because they're used to the dead always being close, right? And in that way, their kind of fears were slightly different than ours. But thinking that that was why Romero's particular type of zombie, the dead returned, really, really scared us, you know? Uh, there's also this uh, notion of ghost stories, and ghost stories, you know, in kind of were popular again in the U.S., but they kind of wax and wane mm -hmm. here. But uh, overseas, of course, particularly in Japan and China. Huge. Ghosts, yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, again, that comes. I wonder if that comes down to, for all the ways that the United States is still an astoundingly religious country and, and many, many Americans believe in life after death and all that, that something about ghosts, like we don't maybe have the same cultural narratives about like there are spirits always sort of close to you, around you, that, that even predate 
say, organized religion, as you will find maybe in Japan, Korea, China as well, that long before sort of organized faith, there were still cultural practices that had those deeply held beliefs. And then maybe that's why those particular kinds of ghosts, vengeful ghosts, right? I mean, ghosts that things were done wrong to, things like that, have such currency with them. Are West Coast stories uh, family stories, essentially? Family dramas? I wonder, like, if a lot of ghost stories are uh, about guilt, whether it's a family or not, that the ghost is there to force a reckoning on the people who are alive, right? Like, ghost stories are for the living, not for the dead, obviously. And that it makes sense that so many ghost stories would be about ghosts within a family, if only because uh, so many families are hiding secrets that often probably need to be, would be healthier if they were brought into the light. When you think of a good ghost story movies, good ghost movies, what comes to mind? That's a good one. I'm trying to think, like, I'm, I feel like I'm thinking ghost story and what's popping into my head is lots of demon stories, which is not the same thing, do you know? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and then I end up going to, I guess I end up going more toward uh, Japan. Like, if I'm thinking of the ghost stories in, of the last 20 years that have really deeply scared me, they would all be Japanese ones. Certainly, uh, the ring, the original ring, is terrifying. I also like that in those ones, the Japanese ones, the ghosts are rarely, it's more like they are reminders. I don't recall, you don't see them like show up and tear off somebody's head or something like that. It's more that they are just there and they begin to get closer and closer and that they often cut away before uh, the ghost actually does anything. And the terror is to be reminded of that person or to be reminded of some sort of pain or loss that happened. And that is like the ultimate horror in a lot of those. And when you think of demon movies, then what demons are you thinking of? Well, so, I mean, the granddaddy, I guess, would be The Exorcist. I'm certainly thinking of The Exorcist as a, just a great demon movie that, again, like the metaphor, I feel like that's a more conservative one because I do sometimes feel like it's a criticism of like the single mom who's in Hollywood, she's an actress, right? How dare she try to do all this on her own kind of thing and then she's sort of punished for it until she can be saved by a couple of good men kind of thing, you know? Uh, I still think it's an incredibly creepy demon story and then it's underrated, but Exorcist Three, I think is also a really good demon story, even with all the work that was done to chop it down and uh, make it terrible. Uh, the original, like, res uh, restored cut of it is still a pretty chilling uh, movie. Exorcist 2 has its fans, but usually for more of the mystery science theater. The, yes, thing. I think the camp of it is probably more where that sits. Uh, in fact, I have to admit, like, I saw it probably once. I was never drawn to see it a second time. Let's talk about the character of the vampire, and in particular the fact that so much of it uh, sprung from, you know, books, from literature. Right. It must be, the, those stories are so old, I think, like, uh, the literature sprang from folk tales, and then uh, folk tales turned, were turned into books, and then it makes sense that, like, in a way, vampires are one of the oldest sets of stories that we have, so the idea of needing to sort of plug into that old history, is like a way the movie's plugging into the book, the book is plugging into folk tales, and in that way we're going back to, like, the first people uh, standing around the campfire talking about the things in the dark. Well, let's also talk about how authors, in particular, then movies picked up on it, have like reinvented the vampire. So, for instance, with Stoker's version, and then into what Anne Rice did, right? And, you know, the Twilight or Steve's uh, Thirty Days of Night. You know, right, like right. That. That's right. So, 
Well, it feels like you often see it like teeter between either like romance, like there's the romantic or there's the horrific. It almost seems like um, generation by generation, people need one or the other until they get sick of that one and then we come back to the other. Uh, or I guess maybe occasionally people just need a break from either set of vampires and then we get zombies for a while or something like that. But I think, I mean, it's such a, I mean, they too are really zombies, right? Like, I mean, they are on the living dead. And, and yet, I think what's interesting about them is the living off the human blood, like in particular, that thing. And in, uh, certainly in the uh, Bram Stoker, you know, there's room to read it as like a, a book about alcoholism or about substance abuse and uh, the powers of that, along with, you know, fears of immigrants from Eastern Europe and all that kind of stuff. But I think that they're such a pliable monster Right, they're one of the ones that can be warped and used the most. Them and zombies, really, probably, right? Like uh, werewolves are still having trouble uh, being lots of different things. But vampires really seem to hit a sweet spot again and again. And Gerald Del Toro found a way to make Gilman uh, romantic. Yeah, that's right. I feel like only uh, Del Toro would be able to make Gilman like sensual and like uh, almost lovable. But he does it again and again. It is amazing. And speaking of which, which uh, what recent horror films have you liked? Uh, so there's been a couple of uh, really small horror movies that I've seen that I really like. One was called uh, Final Prayer. That's, uh, I think, a British or Irish one. There's another one called uh, Dark Song. That one was really moving and powerful. Uh, I guess these would be largely called like quiet horror in that they slowly build to the big stuff. But once they get to the big stuff, it's pretty rough and gruesome. Those are two that I've watched in like uh, maybe the last week or week and a half that stayed with me and really made an impression. And I think super low budget and it was all about atmosphere. What are your favorite horror films? The, my favorite of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. I think I saw it at the right age for it to make us, to sort of burn through my skull and make a deep impression. But I also think it is actually a really well done movie. Well written, the actors are great. That movie I think is the best one, for me, the best one ever made. And the one I can come back to again and again. Also, like one of the great you know, special effects movies too. That it's amazing. I mean, speaking of uh, leaning into the genre troops or the horror troops, I remember watching something with Carpenter where he said like, you know, the, the, the horror sort of truism was things can be real good and scary until you see the monster, right? And to this day, people still feel that way. And that him and uh, Rob Bottin, I think was his name, the special effects guy, said, well, what if we show them the monster constantly? But we come up with the trick is that the monster is a different monster every time. I mean, that's just brilliantly leaning into the problem uh, in a way that makes it then like, from then on, everybody who does that is just like, oh, you're just doing the thing, right? So. I know he kind of complains about, he complains about a lot of things. I was going to say. But, but <laughs> particularly Val Luton's films. I'm like, why do people like Val Luton's yes. stuff? Because I want to see the monsters. Right. Well, but I feel like a Carpenter's aesthetic in general seems to be pretty like no nonsense. Like just get to it, give me what I want. And I feel like that's not what Luton is doing. And also he didn't have the budget to allow him to do that. The nice thing is Carpenter can feel a little skeptical about what's good about him, but it doesn't matter, I can like them both. 
You spoke a little about Get Out. I mean, right. I have yet to meet anybody who has anything less than high praise for Get Out. For Get Out. Well, they're not going to say it on camera, <laughs> right? So, uh, so you don't know, really. But uh, yeah, for me, I think uh, it was just such a pleasure. And that mix, again, of like comedy and horror makes that movie that much better, I think, uh, because it, it ratchets between emotional registers as opposed to just sticking with the one that is going to exhaust anybody. And then, at heart, it's actually a really simple story. I mean, it, it's certainly not, I wouldn't call it a comedy. It's a black comedy. Though. Yeah, it's that's a... dark, you know. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, uh, but it's a thriller as well, right? I mean, in the end, it's really much more of like a medical thriller than it is like a horror story in the maybe more conventional sense. And that's what I like, too. It's kind of constantly morphing and not quite letting you settle on what it is. And I think that works to its advantage, you know. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>